chapter 3, and we will be going from verse 11 through to 24 tonight, towards to the end of chapter 3. So far, we've, we, we, I'll, I'll quickly recount that we might just get ourselves oriented as we jump into the book of 1 John again, but, but what, uh, what we've seen already is that John is a faithful pastor. He's a very old man at this point. He's uh, probably in his 80s, inching towards his 90s. Uh, uh, so he's really getting some runs on the board. He's been an apostle all these years of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been planning churches, preaching to churches, doing that missionary task around the world. But as happened to every one of Paul's churches, as happens to every church that God faithfully plants through the seed of his gospel preaching, false teaching comes, it is attacked, it is assailed, and the true Christians are, are assaulted by false deceiving doctrine and false teachers. And this happened in the area of Ephesus, where if you've got a good Bible, you can turn to the back and you can see in the, 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 the map uh, of, of what is about now Turkey. Uh, Ephesus is there. That's where many churches were. It would have been a, a real mega church had every Christian gotten together that had been saved there. The, the gatherings would have been large. There would have been some home churches, but there was also large gatherings. It was a mega city. It was multi-ethnic. A lot of the Jews had escaped there when they fled Jerusalem's destruction under the Jews, uh, under, sorry, the Romans. So it was, it was a, a multi-ethnic church, but one of the people that had made his way there was an Egyptian Jew, false teacher, pagan uh, man, really, uh, uh, who had uh, become in history, after the time of the New Testament, became one of the, the leaders of what is called the Gnostic Christianity, which is no Christianity at all. He was a false teacher. Jesus wasn't in the flesh. He was sort of a, a spiritual apparition. He didn't die for us uh, uh, because that would be ungodly. Really, Jesus was just a man upon whom the Spirit came at his baptism, and then the, the, the God divinity left as he was uh, uh, being taken to the cross. No, none of this blood atonement to appease the wrath of God. We don't need that. None of this Jesus being born of the Virgin as the eternal God in frail humanity, none of that, they, they, they despised it all. And, and part of the things that had come up through those who had taught such a thing was the, the superiority of those who had experienced the spiritual enlightenment that they called the knowledge, or in the, the Greek, it was the, the gnosis, right? The, 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 uh, sorry, that, that's the Latin. The, the gnosis is the, the knowledge of something. Those Gnostics were those who knew. They were a step above every other Christian, and this naturally bred hatred. The other thing, because they were so spiritually minded, it didn't really matter what you did with your body. So you can go and drink up and sleep around and do whatever you please while you despise your fellow Christian because you don't need to obey the law of God. You have the spiritual divinity already within you. And in, to this situation, Paul has, John has written rather, with this thundering truth, this, this strong black and white heresy-crushing epistle, he writes to make very clear that those who followed Serenthus, this false teacher, those who went with him, those who believe what he teaches, are not true Christians. Those who the Holy Spirit has made born again by the gospel, believe in Jesus, love the brotherhood, and become righteous people. Therefore, those people who have gone out from us, who did not remain in the true doctrine of Christ, who despise other Christians, and who do not care how you live with the body, they were false brothers. Serenthus is a false teacher, but you, again, John just keeps on bringing it back to us. Don't you realize that, that when, when others go out or others fall down, we have the habit of sort of, of stopping to look where we're walking because our noses are in the air. We're, we're so proud of the fact that we haven't fallen. And so Paul says, take heed lest you fall also. 
So there's the warning. John would tell us that while there's so much wrong to look at what the false teachers did, to look at what the false Christians believed, how they lived, how they acted, friends, we need to turn inward. And we need to make sure that, that unlike them, unlike the bad examples Paul's gonna, John's going to bring up, we need to keep ourselves in the holiness of God, in the love of the brothers, in the true doctrine of Jesus Christ. They're really the three veins that go through his, this whole epistle. Go to verse 10. This is where we ended last week. This is a thematic verse that summarizes the whole of the letter. It says this, by this it is evident who are the children of God. Okay, so it, it, is, it is possible, it is pretty easy really, at least in this situation and often as we look around, it really is quite simple, just given enough time, those who are born of God and those who are false brothers or those who are children of the devil. He says, it's evident those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil. Whoever does not, one, practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one, two, who does not love his brother. Last week was all about holiness. In this, as we look to Jesus and behold Jesus, we should become like Jesus. We become what we behold. That should be holy and righteous in his sight. But then secondly, what he said at the end of verse 10 there is where he then goes to now. So verse 10 sort of looks back and looks forward. Nobody who is born of God uh, 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 fails to practice righteousness, and no one who is born of God fails to love the brothers and sisters. And that's tonight's, method, uh, tonight's message and theme, is those who are truly born of God love the children of God, those other Christians. Can you read with me? You follow along in your Bible. I'm going to read verse 11 through to verse 24. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, we should not be like Cain, who was of the devil, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed. And in truth. By this we shall know that we are the truth, that sorry, that we are of the truth, and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask for, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. May God bless the reading of this pure, holy, powerful word among us this evening. <clears throat> John starts by giving us some examples of different family lines. 
He wants us, if we're children of God, to look like the children of God. He wants us, and, and, and he, he does us a, a, a great deed, a, a hand in here, not just by leaving that definition with us. You act like children of God, whatever you think that looks like. He points us directly to Jesus and the explicit commandments in the Bible. Be like Christ, follow his commandments. That's what we're told. But he first starts out, not so much with the example of Jesus. We'll get there. He starts with the bad example of Cain. So look at what he says in verse 12, after having just opened up uh, in verse 11. You should love one another. This has always been the message. This has always been part of the gospel proclamation. And this has been the summer, summary of the entire law of God since it was ever given. Love one another. But as long as, as God's creation has been fallen, hatred and murder has grown in the hearts of men. And therefore, he goes back as early, really, in history as he can possibly go to the earliest brothers. In fact, the very first set of brothers that ever existed. Hatred between brothers goes back a very long way. He goes all the way back. He says, it's evident those who are children of God and those who are children of Satan, because the sinful nature or the righteous nature always show themselves. Both of these things are a kind of active, growing nature abiding inside of somebody, so that if somebody is of a righteous nature, they can't help but eventually manifest righteousness in their life. And if somebody is of a, of a devilish, evil, God-hating nature, that does not bide well under biblical teaching. It does not bide well in God's world. It always erupts, okay, overflows, becomes evident of its own nature through sin, and outbreaks of evil. In fact, we can say even within the same family, it becomes obvious eventually, even if one brother is Abel and one brother is Cain, in the same family, brothers arise in hatred over each other. And I think that's an encouragement because John is also speaking to a church, and he says even within the one church, I mean, there wasn't different parenting styles that raised Cain or that raised Abel. They were one family. And there might not be human uh, elements that you can point to as to why did this person believe the false teacher? Why did this section of our church, why did that family up and leave with Serenthus? And, and John's saying to them, even, even within the one family, there can arise not of the flesh but of the spiritual realm, two different types of people. Cain and Abel are great examples of this. <coughs> that Though they were physically brothers... Though people might have been physically in the church of Ephesus, that is no certainty that we are of the one spiritual family. That thing which makes it certain is what we believe and how we live. So he says, do not be like Cain. Do not be like Cain. Cain is never given to us as a positive example in the scripture, except that he was a very good hunter, and we like that at least. Uh, but that's about all. <clears throat> Do not be like Cain. We should really aim to, if we, and, and John does this for us, if we're being told not to be like somebody, we should know what it was about him that we want to not be like. What is it about Cain that we ought not to be like? We see here, first of all, that he was of the evil one. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one. Or in the language of what else John has been saying in the prior verses, he was a child of the devil. He was of the evil one. That is, his nature was the same. His origin, his life source was, the, was that of the evil one. He was of, he was cut from the same 
cloth as the evil one. Or verse 9, back in chapter 3, he talks about the, the seed of God abiding in somebody. Well, Cain, it was obvious, had the seed of the devil abiding in him. Or if we take the language of John from the gospel, when he wrote that book, in chapter 8, he quotes Jesus. And this is the wordage that he uses to speak to the Pharisees who were seeking his death. You are of your father, the devil. Jeez, you guys look just like your dad. You know, you're starting to grow up and your facial features, even if you hate your dad, you always end up looking like him, right? And if you love him and you want to be like him, well, one advantage is you'll at least always kind of look somewhat like him. That's just DNA. And Jesus says that to the Pharisees. You guys, I've seen this before. It's so cute how you resemble your dad. I've known you since you were this big and now you look like your dad. Satan, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He speaks here of lies, hatred, murder, and being a child of Satan. He could, he could be saying this to the Pharisees as he was, all of that language could have been spoken to Cain. All of that language could, could have been spoken to Serenthus and also to false Christians. You're of your father, the devil. Your desire is to do his desires. You hate the truth. You're in the darkness, a murderer in your heart. So we see there, first of all, do not be like Cain. He was a child. He was of the evil one. And number two, do not be like Cain because, verse 12 shows us, his deeds were evil. Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil. He had not received God's nature through regeneration, which enables us, right, this is what the, the gospel includes, is that as being born again, being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you are enabled and empowered to do good. Cain had not received the new heart. He received, however, through the fall of his father, therefore was born into a devilish, satanic nature. Now, we don't mean any kind of uh, uh, more than what the Bible means here, as if every person born is kind of devil-indwelt or demonically uh, uh, oppressed or, or possessed. We don't mean that. We simply mean that you don't need to be demon-possessed to hate Jesus and live evil desires out in your life. You just need to be born. You just need to be a son of Adam. Well, his deeds were evil. We saw, if you look into Hebrews 11, it mentions Cain. Uh, he's mentioned a few other places in the New Testament, but in Hebrews 11, we're told that, that, that he, he, he failed to give a sacrifice that was pleasing to God. You can go and read this in Genesis 4, that where, where Abel was bringing a sacrifice of his hard work, which was the animals, right? Abel worked the animals, and he brought a blood sacrifice to burn for God, Cain only brought uh, of his work, which was the, 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 the barley, the wheat, the grain. And so he brought a grain offering. Now, I think there's enough to see in Genesis 3 when God kills an animal and puts the clothes onto Adam and Eve. I think there would have been in some measure, and even in Noah's day, there was a recognition of what was clean and unclean animals. I think what was not written in Scripture, but what did happen was that they were told blood pays for sin, offer animals, meaning that Cain had refused 
to trade with Abel a costly amount of grain to receive an animal just to burn it for God and refused to do that and just brought some grain and chucked it on the fire. But whether or not that requirement explicitly was for a, an animal, what we see in Hebrews 11 was that he did not offer his sacrifice in faith. He came and did the outward signs. He came and he threw things towards God. He obeyed his dad when he said to get to church. Each Sabbath we come and we offer our offerings. Cain was there. He had done it since he was a child, but he did not do it in faith. And since... And I think this is, a, this is a struggle, that when we, we read Old Testament stories, especially like Cain and Abel, we might sort of look at them as some kind of fable or kid's storybook characters that are very two-dimensional. If we know that a man is evil, it is not as if there's just one thing in his life that the story's about which he's doing wrong. John tells us his deeds were evil. He's living out the desires of his flesh. You can be sure that his life was constantly filled with hatred, despising his parents, living out the sexual lusts of his flesh. This was an evil man who was giving in to temptations everywhere and therefore despised the, the, the pains of conscience that would come on him as he came to make offerings to God. He did not do it in faith. In fact, Jude mentions Cain and says that he ruined himself for fleshly lusts. He would have been a liar. He would have been a thief. He would have been mischievous, violent, angry, and lustful. This Cain was an evil, evil man. His deeds were evil. He was of his father, the devil. Thirdly, we're told of Cain here that he hated righteousness. Look at verse 12 towards the end. He murdered his brother because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. What we see in Cain was that there was not just a, a, a love of his own lifestyle, which was evil, but there was a despising his brother Abel. I mean, what, why is it that, that his own uh, imperfection would result in murdering his brother? Except for the fact that, that, that loving of evil always breeds in it a hatred of righteousness and a hatred of those who are righteous. Cain was of his father the devil, his deeds were evil, and he hated righteousness. There's just no neutrality this side of the fall. Now that Adam has fallen, and with him all of humanity, every single person is in either active hostility against the standards of God and against the God that they know to be true, or they are through Christ, by the Spirit, submitting, bending their knee to the good uh, laws and commands of Jesus, that they are in love with Jesus and seek to glorify him. There is no neutrality here. <clears throat> he hated righteousness because he hated God, and hence he murdered his brother. We're told in verse 13, and this is John's little application that we'll make quickly as we're doing this study on Cain. John says, don't be surprised, brothers, verse 13, that the world hates you. Why does it hate you? Why wouldn't it hate you? I mean, often people say, why wouldn't the world hate you? They hated and killed Jesus, and that's a good argument. That's not, not John's argument tonight. John's argument tonight is this has always been the pattern of righteous people and unrighteous people, of, of people born in the flesh and people born again by the Spirit, is that those who are still in the flesh despise the righteous ones. In fact, we can look at Genesis 3 and see that this was God's promise. He's the one who said to the devil, 
I'm going to put an enmity. I'm going to put into the heart of your seed, the, the spiritual seed, and your, the seed of the woman that is the righteous seed that would bring about the Messiah and trust in him. I'm going to put, God says, I'm putting enmity between the two. Therefore, it will be evident in life who are born of me and who are born of you. We shouldn't be surprised that the world hates us, that your friends, as you seek to speak more and more about Christ and live out a more and more righteous life, it's, it's no surprise that they irk at that or that they despise that or they ask you to politely not do that around here. It's been happening since the beginning. Right from Cain's day, he hated righteousness. And then we see, number four, he killed his brother. And this is back in verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one, whose deeds were evil, who hated righteousness, and who, verse 12 tells us, murdered his brother. Verse 15 even goes on further to sort of tell us what was going on behind the scenes. Whoever and everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Cain, in his heart, was a murderer, and his deeds became, like we said at the beginning, his deeds always were going to break out at some point, and they broke out in the murder of his righteous brother, Abel. <clears throat> it's interesting here that what verse 15 says is that uh, uh, sorry, what, what uh, um, verse 14 says, we know that we have passed out of death to life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. It's not merely as if at the end of their life, if they do not abide in love through the, the power of the gospel and the Lord Jesus, they will eventually die. That that's some kind of one moment thing. Or even that it's death and then hell. Both of those are true. But John says now, in this life, they, they ooze death. If you crack open the heart, maybe even some of us who are here tonight, maybe some of your dear friends or a spouse or a family member, you crack open the heart that has not been born again by Jesus Christ, and what you see is not just something that is headed for death, but something that is now oozing, emanating, abiding in death. That what they do to those closest to them is spread death. That though they, what they feed themselves in secret is that which kills the soul. For wherever somebody seeks to shirk the commandments of God and excuse and promote sin, they are bringing death. And Cain abided in death. He follows the work of his father, which John 8, 44 says, You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. We follow the work of our father, every single one of us. We either follow the work of the devil who is our father and therefore do his desires and murder, or we do the will of our father, the Lord, of which could be said to us, you are of your father, Yahweh, and your will is to do your father's desires. He is a giver of life from the beginning. So do not be like Cain, who was evil, whose deeds were evil, who was of the evil one, who hated righteousness and therefore murdered his brothers. Instead, we see from verse 14 onwards that John wants us to be like Jesus. Everyone saw that coming. If I said, be like who? We all know, yeah, we'd be like Jesus, of course. Maybe even you were thinking it's going to be like Abel. 
the opposite side of Cain, but we're not told that. We're told to be like the better Abel, the better righteous brother, the, the better son of the, the woman, the seed of the woman that would bring about hope. Be like the better version of Abel, who is Jesus, because Jesus was not of the evil one. He was of God. He was not one whose deeds were evil, but his deeds were perfectly righteous. Be like Christ, who did not hate righteousness, but hated evil. Do not be those who kill your brothers, but like Christ, be those who die for the brothers. This is what Jesus did, and we see this in verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Where Abel went unwillingly, unknowingly, <laughs> ignorantly, Abel didn't know that he was, he was on his Via Dolorosa, he did not know that he was on the way to his cross and execution when he went out with his brother Cain that day. He thought he was coming back. He had plans. He was foolish, unknowing, unwilling to go. Had he known, he would not have walked. But Jesus came for that express purpose, to be killed by his brothers according to the flesh, the Jews, who also were of the devil. He went fully aware. He came knowing what was going to happen to him, and he walked it willingly and knowingly. That is why he's better than Abel. And what is even better than Abel was that his blood cries out. God said to Cain, after he'd murdered his brother, buried him in the ground, he uses this phrase that comes up over and over again throughout the Old Testament, that the blood of the ground cries out to me. It's as if what, what no one else knows, the nature, creation itself, calls out to the God that made it, remove this nation from me, it's evil. And so God uses language of the, the land spewed out the Jews from the land. The, the, the blood of, of righteous Abel was calling out to God, saying, avenge me, I've been murdered. Call out and hold to account my murderous brother. Hebrews 12, however says that Jesus' blood calls out to God, but it speaks a better word than the word of Abel. Where Jesus' blood was shed, it now calls out to God, not to say, avenge my murderers, but now the blood of Jesus calls out to the Father to say, forgive my murderers, forgive those born of the devil, forgive those who hate righteousness, forgive those whose deeds are evil, forgive them for my blood is not just powerful enough to condemn, my blood is powerful enough to justify, forgive and cleanse those murderous, devilish, Cain-like people. Trust in Jesus, believe in Jesus, and be like Jesus, John is saying. Verse 15, 17, and 18, we read verse 15. I'll read it again. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer in the heart, is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If, if we need no other reminder tonight, stop hating and making excuses for despising your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is so obviously and clearly a sin, which is so easy to make excuses for, John doesn't give many nuances here. He leaves it pretty darn black and white. If you hate, you're a murderer. It's the devil's seed within you. Anybody, it is the easiest thing in the world. Anybody can find a reason to hate a Christian. They're a sinner. They're a fool. Here they are, imperfect, claiming to have some holy, righteous life, annoying me. Friends, reject hatred of the brothers 
Verse 17 tells us, in even more applicable terms, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, right? This is Christian here. This is, you see your brother or sister at church, they're, they're in need, they're sharing a prayer request, they're asking if you can help a brother or a sister in need and yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's not, it's not enough to have all of these theological biblically informed thoughts and beliefs about love. And I'm sure that if you were to reject a brother or sister who's asking for help, who really needed it, you would then be very quick to start defining what love is and go, you know, technically, if I bring up the Westminster Shorter Catechism, love is, uh, you know, and I'm not really sure that just given some food, I mean, their body's going to die anyway. You know, I, I care for their spirit. I'm even, I'm even training them through affliction, you know? We're all good at, at, uh, at reasoning and, and establishing excuses for us, but John just makes it so very clear. High thoughts of love are useless. Jesus did not sit in heaven defining love, knowing love, planning what love could look like. He acted indeed. He came down, he obeyed the words of his Father, and he did what had to be done to meet our needs. I think that what is really interesting here is that the the contrast between verse 16 and verse 17. Jesus laid down his life for us. How glorious. And, and so you think the application's going to be, and so you also be ready in the most glorious, heroic, cosmic act of some kind of redemption when, when all the cameras are turned, when, when you're going to get apostles to write all about you for the years to come and, and history will, will echo with the stories of your great act of love. Not at all. John just says, that was Jesus. He gets all the accolades. He died. He was raised. You know what you get to do? Got some cash? Give it. Got a spare room? Prepare it. Got a spare car? Offer it. Got some food? Cook it and give it. That's it. Do it. Stop waiting for something more glorious, more technical, more theological, something to get a little bit more allocated. Find a brother or sister in need. And if you think they're unlikely to tell you, tap them on the shoulder and say, how can I meet a need? I'm obligated from Scripture to do so. Let me obey. Simply meet needs. That is all that John requires of us. On Judgment Day, we will not be asked if we were loving. We will be asked to give an account for what we did. What will your bank account say? What will your schedule say with all the things you are unwilling to move around? <clears throat> what will your spare room speak of you if these things were called to, to the table to give an account of you? How much of them would pour forth stories and accounts to the Lord Jesus for you to be rewarded with of how you in practice, in deed and in truth, loved the brotherhood? <clears throat> When a brother or sister is in need, do not be like Cain. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and the sisters. We can move on from here. I, lo I love that what we want to look at next is how John, and, and he does this all throughout his book. This is one of the, the main themes of the book. I, I've been mentioning it almost every sermon to try and drive it home. I love that the most common and powerful way that John tells us to do something is that he reminds us what you are. He speaks in terms of natures. 
so that he hasn't just been saying, you know, if you really believe this, why don't you do something? You know, if you really made that decision, doesn't something in you also want to decide to be holy? You know, if you, if you uh, have already done this, then let's do some equations and mathematics and really see it's, it's probably just going to be advantageous anyway to go all the way and keep on obeying. I mean, he doesn't do that. He speaks in black and white natures. You are a creation in this world, a new creation of God. You will be righteous. You're a new creation of God. You're a child of God by nature now. You will love your brothers and sisters. You won't hate them. You won't live in constant, unrepentant cycles of sin. You will be sanctified. You will believe the right doctrine, the right truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, his person, his incarnation, his work, and now his mediatory work. You will. It's so black and white to John, which gives us a great deal of encouragement. It's all about what God has done for you in the gospel, not merely what God demands of you in the commandments. John, let's say that again, focuses on what God has done for you and to you in the gospel, not merely about what God asks of you in the commandments. It's so powerful to think that way. Do you think of your Christian life that way? When you think of the Christian faith, do you think that you've been raised up out of the grave with Christ to live a new life by a new power, with a new purpose and a new Lord in a new nature and a new family? It's just so powerful. It's not just do this, do this, do this. It's learn what God has done to you and learn that you will necessarily do what God has commanded. I, I shy away from the word automatic. I don't want to say that the, the process of sanctification in the Christian life is automatic, as if you become a Christian and it's just going to start clicking on uh, uh, gear by gear in an upward trajectory no matter what. It's not automatic because it requires our, our leaning in, our, our intentional faith, our use of the means of grace, that is church, the Bible, prayer, fellowship, all of those things. And yet, if I want to avoid the word automatic, which would just take all responsibility of us, let me at least say that it is, as the way the Puritans would say it and the Reformers, it is necessary. It is a necessary consequence. It's unavoidable. Or we could say it's inevitable. It's not automatic because it takes your doing, but it is absolutely inevitable because God has ordained that every Christian becomes holy. And, and, and you could ask the question, if you want to do, you could ask, if this whole process is so automatic, then why does John command them so much to do righteous things? I mean, if this process of being born again and then starting to look like Jesus, our older brother, if being born by the power of God will always result in righteousness and holiness, loving Jesus and obeying Jesus, then why does he need to tell them to do stuff? Isn't it automatic? If I was to tell you the money in your bank account, in a certain bank account, will automatically and necessarily increase with interest, if I was to tell you that, not only would you learn something about yourself or about the relationship that is automatic, and inevitable, if I was to tell you, all of the money that is currently there will, over five years, accrue to a slightly greater sum. 
automatically. You don't need to do anything to make that happen, even if it was as extreme as that. Still, one of the applications from that would be, but the more you put in, since it's an inevitable process, the more you put in, the more will be your output in 5, 10, 15 years. So that you could rest easy and, and have some kind of waking assurance in the morning that no matter how good the day is, no matter how good your income becomes this week, you will have a greater increase through interest. That's, that's great. But the second point of application is, and every bit of effort I put in to put extra money in will bring about even greater fruit. So that as this comes back to our sanctification, you realize two things. If it's absolutely inevitable that the children of God will act like children of God, then it becomes a very helpful test. Because you don't get to say, no, I'm one of the Christians that hasn't quite made that decision yet. It's not about your decision. It's about an absolute certainty that God has promised, that God has done. Therefore, it's a good test. Are you a Christian who is progressively through your life being more and more conformed to obey God's commandments? It's simply yes or no. But secondly, what it does is, it tells you that if that is, in a born-again child of God, an absolute certainty that you will increase in holiness over your life, then how much motivation does that give you to, to sow into the means of grace, to, to be at church as often as you can, to read the Bible as often as you can, to seek exhortation and rebuke from friends and not shy away into loneliness like the proverbian fool does, but to dig into the community of God's fellowship in the church. How, how much more are you motivated to do that? Because it can't fail to grow you. And for the children of God, holiness is happiness. John speaks in natures. You are children of God. You will produce righteousness. And in tonight's passage, you will love the brothers. And then he goes to talk about assurance and confidence. Look at verse uh, 19 onwards. I'll, I'll read it as a chunk and then we'll, we'll come back to it. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. You already see that this sort of wraps up what we've said. If you could look at your life and see commandments of God being obeyed and, and the love of the brothers flourishing in your heart, then, then that provides a, a form of secondary assurance that you can reassure your heart before him. By this... The reality of love and the reality of holiness in your life, you can reassure your heart before God. Now, we put a pause there, and I give the warning that Calvin gave. He said, your own lived experience is only ever a crutch to your assurance. It is not the foundation. The foundation of your assurance is Jesus' life, death, and triumphant resurrection, whereby he purchased for you, regardless of your experience, a perfect righteousness in heaven and an eternal life with him forever. However, Calvin said that what John is saying here is there is an additional prop to our assurance that comes through our own experience, that we can look back after John saying all these things, we can look at our own life and say, and you know what? Not only do I have a, a faith in Jesus Christ to receive all that is true in the gospel and therefore find assurance, but I also see in my own life that bleeding out. The very thing that John says will happen. I'm becoming more holy. I'm becoming more loving. I'm growing in my understanding of Jesus. Now, if you were 
to lose a crutch. Maybe you've had a broken ankle, some idiotic sports injury, or a hilarious stair trip, something like that that would have been great to catch on camera. Maybe you've done that before, and you've spent some time on crutches. Now, question. If I took that crutch off of you, are you alive? Oh, yeah, you're alive. Can you thrive? Absolutely not. You're a hilarious spectacle. You're there and you're hopping. You can't drive. You can't cook for yourself and, and all of those things. That, that You're not dead because you don't have this crutch, but you cannot thrive. And that brings us into the next section that we want to talk about. The Christian's conscience before the Lord is not an ultimate truth. It is not scripture. It is not Jesus. But it is a crutch. And without a good conscience before God, your faith and assurance cannot thrive. You may be saved, but you cannot thrive without holiness and love flourishing in your life. So let's look at what he says, verse 20 onwards. Whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandments. This is what pleases him. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God abides in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. Your faith cannot thrive in assurance without your own life of obedience that brings a good conscience, our own habit of love, our own lifestyle of obedience. It is this crutch that Calvin spoke of. However, no matter how true and sure our faith is in Jesus, you will never enjoy the full expression of assurance while your conscience is weighed down with constant and unrepentant sin. God reserves his best joys in the Christian life for his most holy children. God reserves the, the greatest joys in the Christian life for his most Christ-like children. It's not legalism. That's Bible. At God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. We should not expect to enjoy them in our Christian life if we're constantly walking away from God. The joy of fellowship is, is flavored, and our fellowship with God especially is flavored with heaven. We expect not to enjoy it much if our tongue is always burned by worldliness and sin. How many of you have wasted money on a great meal because you drank some microwaved coffee earlier in the day and it seared your tongue? Oh, you've been there. I'm not the only one. That's great. I could, tell, I could not count how many times I've ruined a $50 meal with a 50-cent instant coffee. And so we do in life. As we, as we constantly taste and touch and try and, try and eat the, the pleasures of the world and follow our flesh, we ruin our ability to feel and sense the joy that is in the presence of God. So, faith needs a good conscience to thrive in assurance. The, the, the Puritans used to say that a clean conscience in the believer gives life double joy. Because you enjoy a steak, you have a good wine, you have a great conversation with a friend, you watch a good sunset, and it's not simply as joyful as that is in itself. It's, it's double joy because you enjoy it in the presence and in the view under the countenance of your loving Father, between whom you have no seared conscience. 
Every meal tastes better, the Puritans would say, when you have a clean conscience before the Lord. Every joy is a double joy. Therefore, he says here in verse 20, if your own heart condemns you, just what do you think the all-seeing, omniscient, all-knowing eye of God thinks? You're right. That if in, if in the seared conscience of your disobedience, you feel condemned as you approach God in prayer, then you're right. And imagine what God sees. If your heart, though, does not condemn you, but your conscience is clean, then you enjoy that assurance of your relationship with God. And therefore, number two, we see that assurance translates to our prayers. In verse 22 and 23, we read this. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. He's talking about coming to the Lord and experiencing condemnation in our heart or an assurance in our heart. As we come to the Lord, we need to either bring in that moment of daily calibration, right? This is why daily prayer is so important. It's a daily opportunity to reassess where our hearts are at with the Lord, to reassess how we're living, how clean our conscience is. No one, no one gets a clean conscience by avoiding the presence of the light of God's countenance in prayer. Go, go regularly to God so that he can recalibrate, reassess you, bring to light what you need to fix. But that, those moments of prayer, they become either a time for confession and penitence or for confidence and petitions. But either we, we see from John, you, you come and you, you feel a condemnation and you think, what would God be seeing in me and this seared conscience of mine, this, this dirty conscience of mine? And at that moment, the application is never stop coming to the Lord, stop darkening his door, stop approaching the throne of grace. No, that's never what God's saying from the throne is get up, get out, don't want to see you. No, no, the answer is, the application is when you're there and your heart condemns you and you know that God even more has sin that he sees in your life, at that moment confess in penitence and repentance and asking for a pure heart and an upright spirit. But when we come, and this is what you need to keep in your mind, if you're coming with a seed conscience, ask the Lord for that joy of his countenance, the, the clean conscience in your life so that you can come and enjoy his presence in confidence. And you can ask and receive answers to your prayer. But when we know that we're living in God's will, we're obeying his commandments, we're obedient children, then whatever we ask, we can be sure that God will answer or give me a better prayer to ask. He's my dad. I don't fear him. I have a great relationship with him. I love his word. I live his word. I love his son. I obey his son. I love his children. I love his church. I love his local church. I live and die for them. I have confidence before the Father to ask whatever I please, and he will answer it with a yes or give me something better to pray. So let's say again, our faith, including our prayer life, and including the, the degree to which we see answers to our prayer. Our faith and our prayer life cannot thrive without a good conscience. And it's the Holy Spirit who is that mediating, encouraging, enlivening presence who assures to us that we are children of God. So where are you? Tonight as we wrap up, have you been harboring hatred? Do you despise righteousness? Do you hate the law of God? Do you feed your sin and temptation in your flesh when you get the chance? Are you like Cain? 
Is the devil your father? Are you obeying his desires? Do you have no assurance before God? Does your heart condemn you when you come before the Father in prayer? Do you receive the witness of the Holy Spirit so that you are God's child, or do you receive none of that whatsoever? And I, and I ask that you would go before the Lord, that if you're unsure, if you're certain that you're not a Christian, that you would go even tonight before the Lord, remembering that your eternity hangs in the balance and that salvation is, is so easy for the Lord that he would just give you a new heart and you would believe. Go before him tonight before you sleep. Ask him where your heart is before him. Bring your sins to him. Request and beg that he would give to you salvation, which is free, unmerited by you, assured and bought by the Lord Jesus Christ. For Jesus has died so that people like you can be born again, so that those like Cain can become those like Christ. You are not so lost that Jesus cannot find you. You are not so sinful that Jesus cannot forgive you. You are not so guilty, defiled, that Jesus' blood cannot shed you. It screams from the ground at Calvary to the Father to wash and cleanse and forgive you if you come to the Father through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for you. He bled for you. He now prays that all those who come would be saved. They will be saved. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for the words of John. We thank you so much for the words of the apostles that exhort us to be like Christ in our actions. But Lord, we thank you for the good news that they preach to us first, that we are saved by Christ, that in Christ and the spirit that he has given to us, we have all of the power and the resources that we need to be a holy Christian. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, not discourage, but encourage Christians tonight who in their life find a powerlessness, that you would let them not live in excuses and make, make for themselves reasons why it's okay, but Lord, convict and then assure them of the power they have by the Spirit. But I pray, Lord, also for those of us who have been walking with you and, and yet still have some things on our conscience we've not brought to you. Lord, would you enable us to increase our prayer life, increase our honesty with you? Would you cleanse our hearts and give us that joy of assurance with you, that, that full-orbed faith that sees answers to our prayers. For Lord, you're a merciful Father, and you've saved us in your all-powerful Son. It's in his name that we pray these things, the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen, amen and amen.